You're listening to This Motorcycle Life, conversations about why we ride. Episode 32, The Skillful Monk. I'm Bruce Philp, and thank you for listening. Motorcyclists often compare riding to meditation, but are they really even close to the same thing? That was the question posed by a listener after my conversation with sport rider Anna Rigby earlier this fall, and you're about to meet someone with an authoritative answer. The good news is that answer is yes. The even better news is that means there's even more in it for us than we ever imagined. We'll get to that fascinating conversation in just a moment. But first, as always, this. Thanks to everyone who's written me over the last few weeks, and to a couple of people who wrote reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts, something I should probably be paying more attention to. A special thanks to listener Leon from Melbourne, Australia. I'll explain that in a minute. And two other pieces of housekeeping... Welcome to listeners joining me on Amazon's new podcasting platform. I was thrilled to be part of Amazon's initial podcast offering, which all of you made possible. So, thanks to you too. And if you've reached out to say hi on Instagram and haven't heard back, there seems to be some kind of glitch there that's delaying me seeing your messages, sometimes for months. So, please don't think I'm a jerk. I'll reply as soon as I see each one. And finally, most listeners are likely going to hear this episode during the month of November, which you probably know is pretty important to the folks at the Movember Foundation. If there was ever a time to show me that you appreciate the time and money I put into this podcast, this month and this difficult year would be it. Please donate what you can by clicking on the mustache in my show notes or in my newsletter. It would mean a lot to me, and they need you now more than ever. Okay, let's go. Well, my proudest moment as a rider this season wasn't one that I've shared with anybody before now because it started with a stupid mistake. Basically, I got sloppy and entered a blind corner on a tree-lined road a little bit too early, which resulted in me exiting a bit wide and hugging the center line, only to come face-to-face with a dump truck coming the other way with two wheels on my side of that line. Well, as I say, it was a dumb mistake, but I was still kind of proud of getting out of it. All of a sudden, I was right there in the moment. Everything stopped. I could see the whole world in photographic detail, and it seemed like I had hours to target the gap between the truck and the trees, adjust my line, and avoid disaster. Well, it was kind of embarrassing, but I figured the good news was that I was at least capable of being present. And I realize it's not a very impressive story, but that day was, for some reason, the first thing that came to mind when I received an email from an Australian listener named Leon. He'd noticed how often on this show people compare riding to meditation, two things that he does passionately and thinks might actually have a lot in common. I'm just wondering, he wrote, if you think there's room on your radar for an episode about how motorcycling and meditation intertwine. Well, I thought that sounded like a fine idea, especially given my newfound appreciation for being fully present when I'm riding, 
and so began a search that led to the person you're about to meet. Venerable Kusala Bhikshu is a Buddhist monk who spent more than 20 years navigating the streets and highways of Southern California on a Suzuki Volusia cruiser. Today, he lives and works at the International Buddhist Meditation Center in L.A.'s Koreatown, so his qualifications are impeccable, and he very kindly agreed to take up Leon's challenge with me. Well, as you'll see, it turns out a blind corner isn't the only thing I underestimated this season. Presence of mind is just the beginning of what motorcycling and meditation have in common. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I reached Kusala Bhikshu at the International Buddhist Meditation Center in Los Angeles, California. Reverend Kusala, thank you for speaking with me. Good morning. How are you today? I'm well, Bruce. Thank you. Good. Well, so am I. Um, it sounds like we're both getting um, some um, some much-needed rain in your case and just rain in our case, so uh, the listeners may hear that in the background here, um, but uh, perhaps it'll lend something to the mood. Um, look, before we get started, I, I want to acknowledge something. Um, I am very conscious of the fact that we're going to be talking about um, parallels between an ancient spiritual practice and riding motorcycles, which is, you know, kind of absurd. So I appreciate your tolerance, um, and I don't want the premise of our conversation to seem in any way exploitive or disrespectful, so I, I hope you'll help me out if I say something dumb, uh, because I really appreciate you speaking with me. Well, thanks, Bruce. Yeah, I don't think uh, anything uh, dumb can be said about this. It's, it's, uh, it's an interesting parallel, and they, at some level, have a lot in common. Well, it seems so to me, um, and I, guess, I think that's probably what we're going to spend um, most of our time talking about. But uh, maybe before we do that, it's a bit of a ritual, <laughs> I guess, uh, not surprisingly, a bit of a ritual on this show to introduce guests by asking them um, how they came to be motorcyclists. So why don't we start there? How did, uh, how did bikes come into your life, and what kind of role do they play? Okay, well, uh, my motorcycle history is, uh, as a freshman in high school, my mother bought me a Honda 50 for my birthday. And uh, this was back in the, uh, in the 60s, early 60s. And uh, so it was uh, how, how I started. But even before that, I used to uh, uh, use a uh, clip and put a, uh, a playing card on the back wheel of my motorcycle, or pardon, bicycle. <laughs> so it would make a motorcycle sound. Right. And I really, that, it got me thinking about, you know, wouldn't it be nice not to have to pedal? <laughs> and uh, and then as a freshman in high school, I got the Honda 50, but I only had it for like six or seven months because I started to skip school and just go riding. And my mom uh, took it away and, and resold it. Uh, so that was a, a lesson learned. Uh, don't have too much fun while you're in school. You, you need to follow your studies. And and then in the in the I think it was probably the 1980s. Uh, I, I was between cars, and uh, I I was working in retail. I didn't have a whole lot of money uh, saved up, and I was thinking about well, what can I do to not take the bus? So I'm taking the bus in Culver City uh, to Century City, and I looked at the the window of the bus, and there was a guy on a motorcycle. And I thought to myself, you know what? That might be a nice alternative to the bus, and it might be um, cost-effective 
to go check out some motorcycles. So I went to Marina Suzuki and and found a uh, Kawasaki Eliminator 250cc. And it was like $1,200 or something. And I had enough credit on my charge card that I could uh, charge it. So I charged that motorcycle, and uh, and that was the beginning. And for seven years, a motorcycle was my only form of transportation. I eventually put enough money together to get a car as well. And um, so I rode for 20-plus years and and just had uh, a marvelous time and, and learned a whole lot about uh, what it meant to be connected to the world on a motorcycle. And I think... It also made me a better car driver as well. I was more aware of things and uh, and could see road hazards better. And uh, so that's pretty much the story. Now, then in uh, a couple years ago, I'm 71 now. So a couple years ago, um, I decided it was time to let the motorcycle go. Um, it, it was uh, becoming less and less comfortable. I was uh, a lot stiffer than I used to be. And so I donated the motorcycle to National Public Radio, and and they sold it and made some money. And uh, and I have uh, twenty plus years of wonderful memories to look back on. Now I have to say, in those twenty twenty plus years, I never had an accident. I was very fortunate. Uh, my view on it was that ultimately everybody is going to get into an accident, but not necessarily in this lifetime. So. <laughs> That's that's my story. <laughs> that's great. It actually raises a question um, that I had planned to ask you, which was this: you you gave a wonderful talk, which I found on YouTube, about your path to Buddhism, and the arc of your story, as you told it, um, was motivated by the fear of death. And so we then find you riding a motorcycle in Los Angeles, <laughs> which strikes me as being, you know, possibly. Um, uh, uh, conflicting, and uh, I'm just wondering how that transformation happened, or, or did those two things not intersect until later? Yeah, you know, uh, in, in all the time I rode my motorcycle, uh, I never felt that I was going to die. I, it never entered my mind. I, I felt that I was uh, aware enough and agile enough and, and could deal with any you know problems that came up. But as I got older, in, in my 60s, and then turning into my 70s, you know, that that feeling wasn't quite as strong. And if you've ever driven in Los Angeles, uh, there are a lot of crazy drivers here. And not all of them uh, respect or even see a motorcyclist. So I, I just thought, you know, uh, it, it, it was time. But I, again, I, I never really felt that I was going to get into an accident. And that I was going to die. If I had ever felt that way uh, for any length of time, I wouldn't ride a motorcycle. I know some people are afraid of motorcycles and, and will never get on one. And other people um, are a little too casual with motorcycles and oftentimes find themselves in precarious situations. But I, I was just sort of mindful. And, and in a lot of cases, it was simply transportation. It wasn't just to go cruising and stuff. And, right. Uh, so yeah, so so death can be a, a real uh, incentive to stay awake. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's uh, it, uh, on a motorcycle in Los Angeles is a great place to learn uh, about mindfulness. It seems to me. Um, 
so this episode, um, w- you know, which which was made possible by you uh, kindly responding to my email, was sparked by a question from a listener, and it feels like maybe that's a good place to to kind of uh, get into the, the the meat of this. And although I imagine we'll venture far beyond that. So this listener, his name was Leon, um, wrote me observing that guests on this show often compare motorcycle riding to meditation. And, um, you know, he may have meant that in terms of the effect it has on us, or he may have meant it in terms of the process. Um, I'm, you know, I, I wouldn't want to, um, presume to put his thoughts into words, but, um, I wonder if we could start by asking you to define meditation for us and maybe explain um, what it's really for or what it's really for in, in, in your practice. When, when, when you talk, when you think about meditation, uh, what are you thinking about? Well, that's a great question. And, and what are you thinking about is the perfect way to enter in meditation because uh, the answer to that is nothing. But, but how do you get to think about nothing? That's, that's the hard part. So in Buddhism, there are two forms of meditation. There's mindfulness, which is called vipassana, and there's concentration or focus meditation, which is called samatha. And so we have one that leads to tranquility and focus, and one leads to awareness and, and mindfulness. Uh, I have found that both are useful. And, and it's, and you, and what you're sort of doing is going between one or the other when you're riding a motorcycle. I, I felt oftentimes that I was in a cocoon of awareness, that once I sat down on the motorcycle and felt that familiar feeling of uh, shifting into gear and pulling in the clutch and all that kind of stuff, I, I immediately sort of transformed my consciousness from before motorcycle to on motorcycle. And, and what that allowed me to do is really see things that I didn't observe while I wasn't on the motorcycle. And also to be aware of uh, sounds and and sensation in a very unique and focused way. Um, anybody who rides a motorcycle becomes aware of the sound of their motorcycle and can oftentimes tell if something's wrong simply by the sound that the motorcycle is making. Also, you are, are oftentimes aren't aware of just your intellect speaking to you, your mind, your monkey mind. That that sort of slows down, and oftentimes I found no thought uh, was part of the motorcycle experience. It also uh, the the drone of the motorcycle engine sort of uh, cut through all those thoughts that I had. It was like a knife cutting the thoughts into many pieces, and so none of them really formed in in any special way. So I was I was just the sound and the sensation of wind. And, and the feeling of the motorcycle beneath me and the eyes right at the horizon to, to slow the speed of the motorcycle down so I could react and respond in a, in a, a, a skillful way. The motorcycle um, allows you to, to focus and, and, and simply be with what's happening right now. There's not too much past and there's not too much future. At least I found that to be the case when I was riding my motorcycle. And it brings bliss and happiness. There's a certain sense of joy that comes out of that to just simply be in the present moment experience of your life, especially if it's on a motorcycle. Uh, I can't think of anything uh, better or, or, or more sublime than that. 
Yeah, that's beautifully put, um, and and I agree. And I guess this this the quote I'm about to read you won't won't surprise you. Then um, this is again from uh, from listener Leon, and he said, um, "I've always felt that meditation has engaged the underlying philosophical aspect of motorcycling that engages me, and that also motorcycle has really enhanced my meditation practice. It's a two way street." Do you think he's onto something there? As a rider, was that your experience? I think he was onto something, but I, I wouldn't use the word uh, intellectual understanding. I think what what happens uh, when you hit the motorcycle is the intellect uh, turns off and the intuitive turns on. So it really shifts your your consciousness from relative to ultimate, if you will. That that you no longer exist in the way you did with that sense of self and 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 being well defined that. The, that the sense of self merges into the motorcycle and the experience. So I found that my intellect was absolutely useless, but my intuition was increased dramatically. And, and that enabled me to sense and feel certain things um, before the thought process occurred. And, and that was a wonderful experience. And in meditation, if you sit long enough, everything settles. The mind settles. All the thoughts settle you settle the sense of self merges back into the universe and there's no well-defined feeling of who you are at that point you simply become everything and i found on the motorcycle i oftentimes felt like i was everything and interconnected and interdependent Mm -hmm. so he says that that has a philosophical outcome for him um and so I think I hear you saying that that your experience of being on a bike and the way that it it kind of parallels meditation is that is that you are in the here and now and you're not anywhere else and you're not anything else and I think I understand that as well as a, a layperson can understand it. He he seems to feel there's some philosophical residue of this and um and I wonder you know is that um is that also part of the package or is that just the experience that he's having? I think that is part of the package. I, I think what he's feeling is this. Uh, in Zen, they have a wonderful saying called, uh, the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. So when, when we have a philosophical, intellectual understanding or perspective, that's simply the finger pointing at the experience, but it's not the experience. And I found that when I rode the motorcycle, it was more about the experience than the finger pointing at it. That's wonderful. I'm going to try not to say that's wonderful too often, but I have a feeling I'm going to be taking some <laughs> some notes when I'm editing this. Um, just thinking a bit more about his um, his two way street comment, I, I'm just going to sort of press on this parallel um, some more. In a lot of the conversations I've had with people on this show, um, motorcycle motorcycling has often ended up being a kind of um, metaphor for them. Uh, you know, the sample is somewhat contaminated by the fact that a lot of people who've been on this show have personal stories that are, you know, that are remarkable. So naturally their experience might be more intense, but you know, maybe not. Um, but it's almost as though it's almost like this is why people find riding healing. And, and it's almost like a ride is this parallel miniature life in which you have, um, you know, sort of 
clear agency and, and clear responsibility for yourself. I, I'm not really sure what I'm asking here, but does that sort of sound, that does to me sort of sound meditative. What do you think about that? Are we in, in some small, um, you know, secular way moving towards enlightenment out there? Uh, well, perhaps, absolutely. Uh, my definition of enlightenment is uh, the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena, that you are no longer separate. You, you, you have become one, if you like that term, or you have become connected and unified, if you prefer that term. Uh, and, and I think, I think motorcycle riding is, in, in a very uh, uh, condensed way, life. It's, it's, uh, I found in, in, uh, when I was 52, I rode to Wisconsin and back. So it was a 5,000 mile journey and I didn't have a cell phone and I wanted to see if I could do it. And I wanted to see, uh, how it would feel to be on the road for seven days and then seven days back. And, and would I, you know, exist, would I be, uh, uh, flexible enough to meet all the circumstances in a skillful and happy way? And and what I came to understand was was again a very Buddhist in, in nature that there are the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom are impermanence, a not self, and suffering. So number one, in, in, uh, the impermanence of the motorcycle ride that everything is, is shifting so quickly uh, that you know the the asphalt. Uh, beneath your feet is is almost uh, hard to comprehend because it's it's so blurry from the speed. the The idea of who's riding the motorcycle or is the motorcycle simply directing itself? And then the last aspect uh, the aspect is the suffering. That I found uh, six seven hours in the saddle in one day is a lot of suffering. <laughs> Joyful too, but a lot of suffering, and and I and I found my body uh, just you know uh, needed to take a break once in a while. Being fifty-two, I didn't have that youthful enthusiasm that I that I used to have before, and and in stopping, it was like rest. And where am I now? How far have I gone? Where am I going? Because those thoughts didn't arise when I was when I was riding the motorcycle. So. I was surprised at how much suffering. I, I remember uh, uh, driving through Iowa, and it rained all day. It rained all day, and, and and when you're, I have not found a way to stay dry on a motorcycle in the rain after five or six hours, no matter how many layers you have. And so I pulled into a, a motel for the night, and I said, "Do you guys have a washer and dryer that I can use?" "Oh yeah, it's right around the corner, sir." And I said, "Ah." So you dry everything out, and you get back on the bike the next day, and off you go. And that's sort of like life, that some days are pretty rainy and cold and severe, and other days are warm and sunny and bright. And, and it, it happens, you know, in, in days and months. And uh, on a motorcycle, it happens in hours and, and days. It's, it's much more concentrated. And there's a lot of learning, you know, to be experienced on the motorcycle. And it always taught me uh, lessons um, about, about my life after the motorcycle, what, you know, how, why don't get too attached. Everything changes. Um, and, and ultimately there's no one living your life. You just, it's life living itself. Mm. And, uh, so it was, um, I, I learned, yeah, I learned a lot. That's interesting. Did, did, 
I assume you were very involved by that point in the practice of Buddhism. Um, did, did, did you experience that learning as sort of proof of concept or, or were there actual revelations involved in, in the, in the ride? I'm going to ask you some more questions about that ride in a minute, but in, uh, I just want to grab the moment to, to ask about that. Yeah. Uh, I, I was in very involved in Buddhism. I, I'd been ordained by that time and, and was a monk. And uh, I uh, was visiting the family who, who lived in Wisconsin. And so w- what, what Buddhism always worked out for me, it either worked one or two ways. Uh, the, the first way was I'd read something in a book and I'd go, wow, that's really cool. But at that point, it's just intellectual. It, it, you have no experience and you just wonder if it's ever going to happen to you. And then oftentimes in certain situations like motorcycles or meditation, something similar happens, not the same thing, because I've got different karma than the person that wrote the book or wrote the article, but something similar happens and it validates that truth that you found in the book on the pages and you go, okay, yeah, cool. I got it now that that does work that way to a certain extent because I've experienced it. And then the second way it works for me is that uh, I have an experience, and it's something I can't, I can't explain. I, I remember one time I was meditating, uh, and I had this really unusual experience. And, and the next week, I went to my meditation teacher, and I said, you know, I had this experience, and I was wondering if you could help me out and tell me what it was. And so I explained what the, the feeling was and what happened and blah, blah, blah. And he, and he looked at me and said, Ah, progress, progress. But he didn't tell me what it was. He didn't <laughs> tell me why it happened. He didn't tell me if it was good or bad. He just said progress. So sometimes you have the experience, and then you're able to dissect that experience and 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 give it meaning by a, a page or a person or a conversation or something. So either way, it validates it. So you've got the experience first, and that's val inval- that's validated by what you've read or heard, and then you have something that you've read or heard, and then that's validated by the experience. And so on that motorcycle ride, it worked both ways. Certain things happened that I went, aha, yeah. And other things happened, I went, I said to myself, I wonder, I wonder what that is, or what, what that means. Is there a meaning to it? Is this a sign of some sort? And um, so it, it, and that happens every day and every week and every year. It's just, it happens if you start to wake up and start to see the world in a rather unique way, and I see it in a rather Buddhist way, which is which is unique, but there's the Christian way, and there's the uh, Islamic way, and there's the Jewish way, and and all this, all these different ways of looking at it, and and they all make sense at some level, but I think it's validated by personal experience. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. I, I've always had this feeling that there are a lot of people who ride motorcycles that are kind of questing um, for something, and and uh, maybe you've just explained what that is. Um, I want to ask you about one theme that came up in some of the talks of yours that I've watched um, that caught my attention. And I, again, I realize that this is a, a, a large and not simple concept, and I'm going to make it seem simpler and smaller than it really is, but it, it caught my attention. And when it went like this, it was the idea that the universe has no will and doesn't really care about me in particular, that it has no plan and nothing is personal. Um, and that all there is is the way I react to the things across my path, or at least that's kind of how I 
I consumed it. Um, so as a motorcyclist, that took me straight to the very literal challenge of surviving in traffic or hostile riding conditions. And, you know, so I, I kind of chewed on that and continue to chew on that. And I wonder if there's something, you know, the people listening to this can can literally borrow from the Buddhist tradition to, to make us better at this, because it really does sound like um, the best description of life on the road that I've ever heard. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that's really interesting. And, and, and how that idea came up to me was, was this, that, uh, Buddhism is non-theistic. So, so we don't deny uh, a supreme being, but, but we say, you know, the supreme being may not be able to help me end my suffering. And so Buddhism has this little niche. It says, you know, um, we can help you with your suffering. We can show you why you suffer, and we can show you how to reduce that suffering. So what, what I started to see was Buddhism doesn't have justice. It doesn't have a supreme being who defines what is right and what is wrong. And what Buddhism has instead is karma, the law of cause and consequence. So when you look at the world, uh, it's much easier to depersonalize it that way. And, and say, okay, uh, this isn't really against me at all. This, these are certain conditions that have come together to create this situation. And, and I'm in it. And, and so what do I need to do to make the situation better or to end the situation altogether? Um, and, and, and so we don't curse, you know, and say, why me? Why me? Uh, we say, okay, what next? <laughs> what do I do now? And, 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 and the skill that comes from riding a motorcycle, uh, is very useful in, in all, all forms of life. And so I found, you know, heavy traffic. Okay. Uh, I, I've, I've been on the freeway and, and somebody has, has moved over to my lane and pushed me to the, to the center line, uh, because they didn't see me for some reason. And, and I'm going, wow. I guess, I guess I am invisible. I guess I don't count. I guess there is not a self to really identify. And so I just would slow down and then go back into the lane and, and understood that car people are looking for cars and truck people are looking for cars, but very few people are looking for motorcycles. And that's why oftentimes we're unseen and, and sort of stealthy as we do our journey. So in, in, in all of that, I, I found it karma being the concept of cause and consequence of being very useful that, that if I have skill, if I have skill in what I think, say, and do, then the consequences will be much better for me. If I am unskillful in what I think, say, and do, then the consequences will come and bite me. And so I, I just felt that the secret to good motorcycle riding is to be skillful in the karmic way. Can you... Can you um Explain that uh, th- th- this word skillful a little more, because I think the people who listen to this podcast are going to understand that word a certain way, <clears throat> as you know, as as I would. But it has a, a really interesting and particular meaning for you, right? Yeah. Well, well, the meaning for me was, uh, you know, oftentimes in life, you know, you, you feel that it, it, you know it's against you, that that it's it's, it's fighting you all the way, like a like a riding a bicycle with a strong headwind, you go, man, or going uphill on a bicycle and you go, man, this is so difficult and, and blah, blah, blah. And why can't it just be the way I think it should be? 
So oftentimes I found myself looking at the world and wondering why it's not the way it should be. And, and, and it caused me a lot of grief. I, I, you know, if only the world was this way, if only people thought that way, this would be such a pleasant place to live. Uh, and, and motorcycle riding, if, if, you know, if it wasn't too cold and it wasn't too hot and, and there was enough shade or, you know, it was an open road, it would be just like the perfect ride. And, and, and rarely does the perfect ride ever happen. There's always, always uh, something that just sort of makes it less than perfect. So I, I thought to myself, well, okay, I'm really in charge of how I experience the world. The world just is the way it is, and I interpret it in a certain way because of, you know, birth and, and school and experience and peer groups and on and on and on. And, and so if I really want to have a perfect ride, I don't need to change anything on the outside. I need to change something on the inside. I need to see it differently. And that's where the idea of karma came in, that if I'm practicing and being more skillful, what can I learn on this ride that I didn't know on the last ride? I can apply that and I can make the internal experience much more pleasant, no matter what the external experience is, because I've become in charge. It's, it's, it's the, I'm in charge of the way I experience that motorcycle ride. Yeah, exactly. Like, and I think, you know, for me, the, the, the parallel between motorcycle riding and meditation was interesting, and it's the reason we're speaking today. But the more I listened to you um, in advance of this conversation, the more I understood that the real parallel was the idea that a, a good motorcyclist understands that much more uh, depends on them um, than it sometimes than sometimes seems to be the case. If that if that makes sense, and that really resonated for me. Um, and, and does that would that be a fair takeaway? Do you think that would be a, a, a very fair takeaway? That yeah, there there is an accountability uh, that the motorcycle rider has. They they are accountable. And I often thought, though I've never had an accident on a motorcycle. I've never even laid it down in twenty plus years. Any accident on a motorcycle hurts. <laughs> it hurts a lot. Right. You know, and I'm so there's an accountability that says, you know, you don't want to go there. You don't want to be in that accident. And the best way to prevent the accident is to be aware, to be aware of your surroundings, because other people aren't necessarily going to be aware of you. You need to be aware of them. Yep. That's that's the way I got it, and uh, and I, I I think it's somehow validating that it's a it seems to be a universal truth. Um, let's talk about your ride to Wisconsin for a minute. So you um, almost twenty years ago took undertook a, a ride from Los Angeles to Wisconsin, which I gather was your um, birthplace and or, or where you grew up, uh, five thousand miles in a couple of weeks, which you did on your own, um, and it seemed to leave a strong impression on you. And I, I read your account of that trip online. And I, I want to ask you about a few things you wrote um, about the trip afterwards and see how they sound to you 20 years later, you know, kind of a little bit abstracted from the experience, if, if that's okay, because there was just some some great stuff here. Um, let me start with this, which is um, uh, which is the, the longest passage. You wrote um, ellipsis. I just it it just can't get any better than this, and yet it always did. The colors, smells, and sounds moved me not to think, but to that place deep inside where words have no meaning, 
where time comes to a complete stop and space is forever, the place where all things are connected and fear can't exist because you are no longer separate. And I thought that was sort of gorgeous prose um, and a really beautiful passage. And I think that as I clumsily read through it, there are probably a few thousand motorcyclists out there nodding <laughs> you know, at your words as they listen to this. It feels uh, like a very familiar truth. Can you talk about it a bit? Is, is what you were experiencing there kind of spiritual and, and is it therefore for us too? Well, yeah, I think spiritual might be uh, a better word than than religious. You're right. There's there's something about the spirit and, and the spirit of writing. And and what I came to realize uh, on on the road, and and, and this was a uh, this was I think in, in in New Mexico where I had that feeling, and that's where the words came from. And 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 the road was parallel to a train track, and there was a an amazingly long train. Uh, to my right, as I rode down this 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 two lane highway, and and it had just rained, and and so the sage uh, brush and and the grass, and you could smell the, the the smells were just so powerful, and and you surely don't get that in a car with the windows rolled up and the air conditioner on, and and it was uh, and then the clouds were breaking and the sun was coming out, and and it, what what caught me was uh, that the fear of uh, the ride, of going to Wisconsin, of, of crashing uh, in a, on the side of the road, all, all left because in, in order to be fearful, I needed to be separate from the experience. And, and I was drawn into that experience. I was sucked in and it just, you know, it wouldn't let me go. It was just, you know, you're part of us now. Our arms are open. We're going to give you a big hug and welcome back to the to the universe not the world but to the universe that you've been separate from ever since you learned how to read and write and it, it just it just really caught me that that was an amazing moment in an amazing place that would never have happened if i hadn't been on two wheels going down the highway yeah and i think that's the thing that people will the thing that will be most familiar to people's ears um but if if you'll if and if our listeners will indulge me a, a, a just a moment of personal reflection on that i read the sentence uh, the place where all things are connected and fear can't exist because you're no longer separate and um and thought about my own kind of um procrastination about taking uh, a long motorcycle trip which is driven not so much by fear but by the feeling that when i'm on the road by myself i feel unmoored and it sounds to me like you, it sounds to me like you've described the same experience but in a more um open and positive way do, do you have a do you have a comment on that well yeah you know it 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 the, the idea that we've been separate uh, since we learned to read and write, that, you know, uh, we, we, we got a name from our parents. We, we were taught how to read and basic math, maybe at home before kindergarten. And then we went to kindergarten and we were, you know, started to be formed into the person we were about to become. And then we went to grade school and we were even more well-defined. And then we went to high school and some went to college and, even more well-defined. And then you've got a career and you had to be this person. You had to be that person. You had to think a certain way. And if you thought the right way at the right time, you were successful and you had plenty of money and, and maybe you wanted to have a family and, and raise your own little children into becoming somebody. And, and then you're on the road, you know, and, 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 
all those reference points that define you are now taken away. And, and, it, and, and all of a sudden, the universe opens up again in a similar way that you were able to experience before you could think about it. That, that when you were just a small little guy or gal, you know, it was just, your life was just sensation. The thought process really hadn't started yet. And then, for some reason, at some point, the ego came in. And, and, and when the ego starts, which we're the only animals that have one like we do, it's such a strong one, then we have to be somebody. And Ram Dass, one of my favorite teachers, uh, oftentimes said, you know, when we're young, our job is to become somebody. And when we get older, our job is to become nobody. And what I found on the motorcycle ride to Wisconsin is there were many times that I was nobody. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was a wonderful sensation that freed me from all the things I had to be or should be. But then I, you know, stop off at a gas station because I needed to fill the tank. And then I needed to be somebody. I, I needed to leave that nobody behind and become the somebody who was riding the motorcycle to make the payment, to use the charge cards, to, <laughs> to, to be somebody that the person at the gas station could relate to. That Here's somebody riding a motorcycle who needs some gas. And I needed to play that part now. But then back on the open road, that, that somebody felt, uh, fell away again. And then, and then I was nobody in the best sense of the word, that I was simply um, the motorcycle at that point on the road. Wow. Um, thank you. That was great. That was a great answer. Uh, and it sort of leads to the next passage I wanted to ask you about, um, actually, which, which sort of screamed off the page at me, and it's this one. You, you wrote, the, the, the discomfort I felt on the road was my first real sign of freedom. Um, what, is, what did that mean to you? The, it, it is, that is a good quote. I, I like that. I, I don't know why I said that, but but yeah, the 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 suffering on the road uh, allows you to to be free from striving towards the pleasure and happiness that we all strive for every day, every moment of our life. We we try to you know push away the bad, cling to the good, hold on to the good, hold on to the pleasant. And there I was on the road, and and there was no pleasant, there was no pleasure, there was no good, there was simply suffering. You know, the vibrations were painful, the wind noise was painful, the upright position was painful, all that stuff, and and, and that sort of freed me from having to feel good. If if I could accept that and just be with that without suffering without that, that pain turning into suffering and that pain simply turning into sensation, then I would be free. So I'm going to be free from aversion and I'm going to be free from attachment. And in, in the Buddhist meditation, there, there comes a time when you're sitting quietly and your knees hurt and, and all of a sudden they really hurt. And all of a sudden you realize that if you don't move your leg, uh, you'll never be able to walk again. And that's how the mind works. The mind looks at any pain as being a, a symptom of death. And if the pain gets strong enough, you will die. And so you're never really free from the fear of death uh, because, because pain is everywhere saying it's just around the corner if you don't do something. 
So we're always adjusting the leg or adjusting our thoughts or trying to find a new experience that doesn't have the pain and suffering. But settling into that suffering was, in a very real way, uh, practicing to be free. Hmm. <laughs> it, it's, uh, I, as I said earlier, I think I'm going to be making a lot of notes while I edit this. <laughs> um, so I apologize for my lengthy pauses. Um, this next one was not something you wrote, but something that you quoted, um, which was uh, the following. You met someone on the road on a on a motorcycle. I think it might have been a BMW. Um, I don't know why I remember that detail. but uh, And he said, most of the stuff we carry on our motorcycles is to keep us warm and dry. And that, in the context of your story, that sounded almost monastic to me. Um, is that what made you remember it? Is that, is that uh, what made that comment worth recording in your story? And do you have reflections on that now? Yeah, you know, I, I was in Yellowstone National Park, and 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 I um, and I wanted to see the guys here. I wanted to see Old Faithful, so I, I stayed at that hotel, which was uh, old part and new part. And for some reason, they always want to stick me in the old part because they think I'd like it more. But I live in a meditation center that in the, the houses were built in like 1905, so I sort of like new stuff too. And and I was in the parking lot, and this other motorcycle guy uh, pulls in, and uh, and we and we struck up a conversation, and and somehow it got around. The conversation got around to that, you know, that everything we is just to stay, you know, warm and dry. And I'm going, man, that is just so true, and it really talks about the getting used to suffering and being free. That that. You can't be free until you just don't want to be warm and dry, you know. And and so I thought, yeah, you know, because most of the stuff I carried with me was jackets and sweaters and a rain suit and a helmet and boots and all those things to keep me as comfortable as possible on the open road. And and again, now at the at the tender age of seventy one and the idea of suffering that oftentimes there comes a time when we can't run away from the suffering. You know, the body hurts or the mind's a little dull or, you know, the food doesn't taste as good as it used to and blah, 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 on and on and on. So, so it, it leads me to look at all that experience on the road as preparing me for old age in a, in a certain kind of way that 20 years later, I don't have to be on the road to suffer. All I have to do is get up in the morning and and there you go. That's it. So how can I come to a place of acceptance with that and understand that it's not something against me. It's not just because I'm who I am. It's simply because that's what life does to you. Life brings you into the world and life takes you out. And then in between the birth and the death, there's like a lot of suffering. And that's very much a Buddhist perspective. But you don't have to you don't have to accept the suffering. There are things we can do, meditation, practice of precepts, things of that sort, that allow us to live and 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 not suffer, but simply to live and be old. 
So I, you've possibly answered the next <laughs> the next question, but I'm dying to ask it anyway. And this is the last <laughs> passage that I um, that I wanted to quote from uh, your story of that trip, and it's this: um, As it turns out, the truth found in the Dharma and the truth you find on the road is pretty much the same thing. Um, that was kind of exciting to me um, as a thought. Can you talk a bit more about that? And is there is there a way is there a way to articulate that truth, or do we all have to go and find it for ourselves. Well, no, there is a way to articulate it because uh, the Buddha 2,600 years ago talked about it. And, and he talked about, you know, uh, uh, life is suffering. Uh, that's the first noble truth that ultimately everything becomes unsatisfactory. Even the most pleasant ride becomes ultimately unple- uh, un- unpleasant and unsatisfactory. Uh, and the reason for that is desire. Desire uh, pushes us into wanting the good or getting rid of the bad. So we have, ultimately, life is unsatisfactory, according to Buddhism. The reason is our desire. Uh, Third, thankfully, he didn't stop there, and he said uh, that there is an answer, and and the answer is nirvana. Now, nirvana can simply mean the end of suffering while you're alive, that, uh, not the end of pain. Pain is just part of life, but you don't have to suffer with the pain. And finally, the noble eightfold path, which leads to the end of suffering. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Those eight path factors uh, allow us to experience um, life and have far less suffering. Uh, and, and so as... As I'm on the road, those thoughts kept running through my head uh, in, in the rest areas. And, and I'm thinking, yeah, the Dharma, the Dharma, what the, 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 the teachings of the Buddha or ultimate truth, uh, however one wants to take that, really can be experienced on the road on a motorcycle. Uh, in a car, less so, because there are too many uh, uh, ways not to feel the suffering. In a car, I always am amazed. The heated seat, cool seat, uh, stereo that cost five thousand dollars. Just it goes on and on and on. <laughs> and then you and, and then you sit on this sort of two wheeled, you know, piece of metal with plastic, and you go, "Wow, okay, you know, what's going to keep me comfortable on this? How am I going to not suffer on this?" And and the more you ride, the the more you understand the the truth of writing, uh, the less suffering you experience. And I found that parallel with living a life as a Buddhist and, and riding a motorcycle. That's, it's interesting. You, 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 you created echoes for me there of, um, people I've talked to who've done extremely long and arduous trips. There was a, a woman I interviewed about a year and a half ago who had taken her daughter from uh, London to Cape Town in a sidecar rig, and her daughter was autistic, and the goal of the trip was to sort of teach her courage. Um, and she made the point uh, a few times in our interview that you have to put yourself in a position where there's kind of no way out. Um, or or it, the episode was called Burning the Ship, so it gives you an idea of... Uh, kind of what that was about. And, and, and I wonder what this says about um, the, the need to push our boundaries as, as motorcyclists, what you call breaking the chains of your comfort zone. Um, you know, there are some riders who, who make a point of 
pushing all the time in some way or another. Uh, and others, you know, probably uh, me among them that are, you know, a bit complacent in their happiness, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Um, is there a is there an imperative here to keep uh, making ourselves uncomfortable in your view as writers? I mean, I, I suppose I probably know what the answer is um, philosophically, but I wonder whether you think um, if we're going to call motorcycling a meditative experience, whether that includes a duty to keep pushing. Does And I apologize for the long question, but does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, I I don't think we're pushing ourselves to suffer. Uh, the, the suffering just happens. and and. Uh, uh, a parallel uh, that I found was uh, about halfway to Wisconsin, you know, and and so at that point I figured I'm committed. It would take just as long to go back as to go ahead, and and so there I was. I couldn't I couldn't you know uh, not do it anymore. I had to continue, and and that being in that place uh, allows you to learn a lot <laughs> because. Because you can't stop. Now, there was a time in my meditation practice when, uh, after a, a weekend retreat, I thought about, you know what? I'm screwed. I can never go back to being who I used to be because I've experienced too much of this now and I can't forget it. And I'm just going to have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and walk ahead. So when I was younger, I thought, well, you know, if I don't like it, I can always not do it. And, and there comes a point in your life where you've done it so much that you can't, you can't jump out anymore and say, no, I, I don't, I'm not gonna, you have to go forward rather than go backward. And that long motorcycle ride put me in the place of going, yeah, I can't go back. I just have to go forward. And, and so there's sort of a surrender then to that process of going forward. But not to suffer. The idea is not to suffer. The idea is to get to your destination. But between now and the destination, there will be suffering. And that's the nature of being human. And how can I deal with that? And if I can figure out a way to deal with that on the motorcycle, can I use that in my life? And it turns out you can. Yeah, that's clear. Um, now you mentioned the word destination. Um, I, I realize on that ride, your your physical destination was Wisconsin, <laughs> but I wonder what. Um, I wonder if there's a metaphysical destination, or if we're all pointed at something um, when we're having that experience. Is there? <laughs> even as I frame the question, it sounds uh, like a first year philosophy student, but um, I shall press on. Uh, is 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 if if we're aware of the experience we're having, and there's a purpose to it beyond just you know, covering geography, what do you think that destination is? Well, exactly. I, and, and I, and we get confused by that because, because we think the journey is the destination and, and actually it's just the journey. You know, uh, when I got to Wisconsin, when I finally made my destination, it was nothing like I imagined it would be And every destination I've ever succeeded in attaining has never been how I thought it was going to be. And so on the road, uh, the, the destination became uh, just to find a place to stay that night. That was my most immediate destination. And then even before that is, where's the next gas station so I can get some gas? And even before that, where's the rest stop with the bathroom so I can use that? So there were a lot of destinations <laughs> on the road. And each destination 
uh, led to the next. And then all those destinations put together turns out to be the journey. So it's really not about going anyplace. It's just about doing it. <laughs> yes, of course it is. <laughs> that's, um, that's a, that's a good answer. Um, I wonder what you think of this. I, I've, spoken to, as I mentioned earlier, I've spoken to lots of people who've um, undertaken what were for them epic journeys. Um, probably the most recent one was the uh, uh, an English, um, a young English man who um, was the youngest person ever to circumnavigate the globe on his own. Um, that was obviously a dramatic example, but there but there've been plenty and it's a big part of, um, you know, as you know, of motorcycling culture, this idea. Um, and they seem to fall, these people seem to fall for me into, into one of two groups, the, the ones who are either searching for something or the ones who are trying to let go of something. Um, and I wonder what you think of that as a, as a taxonomy <laughs> and whether you would put that trip that, uh, that we've been talking about that you took into one of those categories. Um, is that, is that, uh, have I oversimplified? No, that's that's a good way to put it, and and I think there are a lot of people searching, and there's many ways to search. Uh, you know, many uh, roads, many paths of searching, uh, and sometimes it's a well-defined uh, answer that you're looking for, and sometimes you're not quite sure what the answer is, but you sort of worked on the question, and and so you're searching. And then I, I I've often thought though it's not so much the searching. That, that drove me to the motorcycle, but it's what I found. You know, uh, I, I found something on the motorcycle that I couldn't find anyplace else. And, and that was the autonomy of, of you know, uh, separateness. Paradoxically, that autonomy and that separateness turned into fullness and interconnectedness. And so we have the, the dance of the relative and the ultimate. And, and, and I found that simply going to the store became an epic journey that it was, it was, you know, uh, will I make it there? Will I have, um, is my backpack big enough to carry all the groceries back to my apartment? You know, all these things. So it was never just get in the car and go to the store. It was always, every time I hit that motorcycle, it was the epic journey. And, and then when I turned 52 and wanted to see if I still had it, the, the epic journey became, you know, how much life is left in me. Can I do it? Can I be flexible? Can I be aware? Can I, you know, do all the things that I'm supposed to do and, and make it a complete success? And, and so it, for me, the epic journey is just where I'm going and what I'm doing today. And, and, and then what do you find? And, and you find what you already knew. At some level, you already knew what you were going to find, what the search was all about. It's just, you just needed to wake up to it. And that the motorcycle ride uh, helped me to wake up. I wonder if, um, I, I wonder if the, if the idea of a road um, has some significance in, in Buddhism. Um, I, there's an expression, I think, that begins, if you meet the Buddha on the road, and um, <laughs> I, I won't even, uh, <laughs> I'm sure you've heard it a million times, but it, it, actually the most interesting part of that sentence to me is, is this idea of the road. There's a presumption um, of travel in there, uh, in, in that thought. I wonder, d does the road have a special meaning in Buddhist thought, and, and is our road the road? Well, uh, the Eightfold Path, it's a, it's a path. And the book that you alluded to was, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. 
um, which was a, a famous book for a while. Uh, I think it was the 70s that came out, if I'm not mistaken, maybe earlier. Uh, I, I never really understood the title until uh, somebody explained it to me. And they said, well, the title of that book means this. If you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. If you see the Buddha on the road, it's just, an, it's just a concept. And, and that concept is going to prevent you from seeing the Buddha. Now, the, the Buddha, again, is just a concept. So you have to get past all these concepts in, in, in order to have a, a direct teaching, a direct seeing, a direct hearing, uh, a, a sense door experience, not filtered through mind or thought or intellect or prejudice or, or self. Can you do that? And and so the, the path leads you to that place. And I, I found the journey on the motorcycle led me to that place. That that there was there was there was no intellectual constructs that were stronger than the experience of being on the road. That they wiped them all away, and it became this direct experience. And it became something that's hard to talk about. And when you do talk about it, it turns out turns out to be more poetry than anything else more poetry than prose and and it's in some kind sometimes it can lead to sort of not making much sense at all because it's so abstract and and you're trying to make it linear and it's not it's just a present moment experience so we don't want to get caught up in the concepts that's what that title of the book don't get caught in the concepts get caught in the experience behind the concept that's what we're seeking and that will give us the greatest amount of, of knowing rather than understanding. I, I make a distinction between understanding and knowing, understanding being intellectual and knowing being intuitive. And for most of us, our intuition, our, our intuition has atrophied because we don't get a chance to use it that much anymore. We're always thinking about stuff. And, and so the road forced me into my intuition and out of my my understanding and then i there was a certain knowing that comes that can't be expressed but can be experienced reading the the story of that trip and especially this idea of the um the sort of breaking of chains i was struck by how much you sounded to my ears like a fellow motorcyclist um you know an articulate fellow motorcyclist but a fellow motorcyclist i i, I didn't feel as if the trip was being you know, retold as a parable uh, in any obvious way. And it made me wonder, while you were still riding, how did motorcycling coexist with your practice? I, I suppose we've probably touched on that to some extent already. But um, as I said, I read that story and I heard um, I heard one of us in, in a sense. I did not hear um, a lesson being taught. Um, how do you feel? What's the, uh, how did those two things work together? Well, uh, to, what comes to mind is the, the idea of being a motorcyclist, number one. And, and I didn't necessarily look like a motorcyclist. I, I never felt that I looked like one. And, and when I would pull in and get some gas or some other motorcyclists to be hanging out, and, and uh, I, I, I wasn't immediately accepted. I just didn't look like they did. And I wasn't riding a motorcycle like they are. And I wasn't, you know, and I'm going, okay, so what does it mean to be me and a motorcyclist? And, and, and what can I learn from that? And it's just sort of that role playing that allowed me to, to feel a certain way. I felt, I felt a certain inner strength. 
when I related to my motorcycle and the way I rode it, I, uh, I enjoyed the way it looked. I thought it was a beautiful machine and, and I enjoyed the complexity and yet the simplicity at the same time. Uh, there was so much going on that uh, I, I just, uh, it's hard to put into words that, that, that feeling of, yeah, I, I was a motorcyclist. I felt that I was. I, and I expressed it, as you say, uh, Bruce, as a motorcyclist. And yet, if you were to look at me and see what I do for a living, uh, you'd go, no, 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 he, he's not a motorcyclist. And so, so the big question is, you know, what is a motorcyclist? And, <laughs> and is there room for everybody? And the conclusion I came to was, yeah, there's plenty of room for everybody. All you need is a motorcycle, either a 125cc Honda, you know, or a 1,000cc, you know, Harley, whatever you ride, that's the deal. That's, that's, that's where you are. And so that came out of that. I hope that was the answer to the question you were looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it does, it does sort of make me wonder for, I mean, this, this is going to seem like a bit of a, on bit of an unfair question, but you've spoken um, at some at a number of points in this conversation about suffering and about the the what what the utility of suffering is, and yet suffering is the is largely the reason why you gave up riding. It sounds like um, now I appreciate that that may have been um, a pragmatic decision. But I, I wonder, in the, you know, in the context of everything we've just talked about, to what extent was there a natural ending to that? Um, because, y- you know, there, there were surely ways to keep going, um, but, it, it, but you didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me tell you the ending. Let me tell you how it all came about. Um, I, was, uh, I, I wanted to sort of uh, uh, fix up my motorcycle. And I bought some new tires, and I took it to a, a Hollywood motorcycle dealership and said, "Hey, can you put these tires on and and can you you know adjust the valves and change the oil and do all the stuff that make it you know really nice and all that kind of stuff?" And so I took it in, and then uh, a couple weeks later, I got a phone call saying, "You know, we we run into a problem, and and so we're going to need some more time." And then a couple weeks later, I got another phone call saying, "You know what? We ran into some more problems." And I'm going to need some more time. So, so they had the motorcycle in there for two months. And, and when I finally picked it up, I thanked everybody uh, for their, you know, uh, you know, consideration and a job well done. But the darn thing never worked right after that. It was, uh, there was some problems with, uh, it would flood and it, it couldn't go any faster than 70 and all the other stuff. And I said to myself, well, do you want to take it back? Because apparently, uh, they messed it up and don't know how to fix it. And, or should I take it to another dealer and have them fix it? Or is, is this a sign? (laughs) Is this a sign that maybe it's time for me to end my motorcycle riding that, that, you know, uh, the universe is saying, you know, Kusala, you had a great run, 20 plus years, no accidents. You experienced so much, you learned so much. But this might be, you know, the time. So I parked it in back of the meditation center and didn't touch it for a couple more months and not really sure where I'm going to take it in and get it fixed or just leave it or, 
And I had to let all the, you know, pain and suffering go about having the motorcycle and, you know, and, and cursing the ones who messed it up and couldn't fix it and all that. I had to let all that go. And so I finally let it all go. And I said, you know what? Maybe it is time. Maybe it is time. So I, I called NPR and said, I've got a motorcycle that I want to donate. And they came and picked it up and gave me a, a, a donation receipt that I could use for, as a tax deduction. And, and off it went. So the reason I uh, quit motorcycle riding wasn't because uh, suffering, wasn't necessarily because I was old and, and gray, but it was more like there was a sign that perhaps was trying to get my attention that now's the time to let go. Now's the time to let go. So that's, that's the real story of why I'm no longer riding. Hmm. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, it's fine. I was able to let go of all of that. Well, I suppose you'd be uniquely well equipped to do that. But I, I, you know, in a sense, that story is about autonomy. It was sort of a final act of autonomy with respect to motorcycling. There's a um, a lovely phrase that um, I heard from the author Melissa Holbrook Pearson. Um, she used the phrase "riding towards the end," and um, the, there was just a sort of sweetness about the idea that. That if if you're lucky, you'll be able to choose, and that there's some comfort in being the one who chose. Um, at least that's how I hear it. Because I mean, I'm not terribly far behind you, and the, that day will come. And and uh, you know, hearing you, I kind of hope it's up to me. Um, d- does that resonate for you? I think I did choose to let it go, and and I think that was the the perfect ending. Rather than uh, an accident, and I'm in the hospital, and the, and the motorcycle's wrecked. I, I, I had a friend that was a motorcycle rider and ended up in the hospital uh, because of an accident. So I, I chose that this was the time, but I chose not because um, I wanted to let it go, but I chose that this might be a sign to let it go. And could I understand it? And could I do it in a skillful way and, and not feel, you know, the uh, separation anxiety or the feeling is not fair or I had a couple of good years of writing to go, and now I can't. And all, all those reasons why you beat yourself up. It was, it was a, a perfect time to close the book and say, okay, now I've got this. And I've got the beginning, and I've got the middle, and I've got the end. And, and that feels good. Uh, what's next? Yeah, that's which is where where you. I mean, that's the best place you could possibly be in this life at that moment. I think um, is to be able to say what's next. Um, you so you do a lot of public speaking. Um, I know, and you've been a, a prison chaplain and a police chaplain, and of course, your work with the, the the meditation center. I think most of the world gets to know you as a as a Buddhist monk, um, and are then surprised to learn that you ride a motorcycle and that you play. Um, the blues harmonica, which <laughs> I'd love the moment when you said, what other kind of music would a Buddhist play? Uh, I thought that was brilliant. Um, but I know that for a lot of those engagements, while you were still riding, you would, you would roll up on your bike. You would appear at the venue um, on two wheels. And I wondered, so obviously the main reason for that is because that was your, your, you know, your principal form of transportation. But I wondered if you were also making a point or, or if there was some value in the element of surprise. Is, was there some premeditation in that, if you'll forgive the pun, um, in, in that choice? Well, 
you're you're right about the choice. The the choice was uh, that was my only form of transportation. So I oftentimes, you know, uh, sometimes people pick you up to and, and take you to the event. Oftentimes they don't. You have to get there yourself. So that was my only form of transportation. But it always raised an eyebrow. And people were always wondering, you know, well, why are you riding a motorcycle? And I, and my answer was, I can't afford a car. And, and somehow they sort of accepted that. And in Asian countries, oftentimes, you'll see, you know, um, people riding motorcycles or, or scooters or, you know, all the time. So it wasn't such a big jump in my mind, but it was for other people. And I think it, it sort of, you know, it signaled something, uh, you know, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Robert Pierzik, you know, that a book I've read three times now and enjoyed each time that, that there is, there's, there's, there's some kind of message in that, that, that there's a certain level of freedom on a motorcycle that you don't have, uh, in a car is a certain amount of freedom in life that you have if you only have a motorcycle, but there's an accountability and 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 the determination that's necessary to ride in the rain to get to your destination even if you don't want to and so there was like a lot of stuff going on when i pulled into the parking lots of my of uh, the people that invited me to speak and 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 then when i stopped riding uh and pretty much just you know did the car thing uh people would always ask where where's your motorcycle how's the motorcycle they were so fond of that image of me on the motorcycle that that they had a hard time letting that go, <laughs> and it was just fine. I think it set up something in, in their minds that maybe one day they'll have a motorcycle too, and and they'll get that experience. Yeah, it's also a pretty powerful symbol for people. Um, I I wouldn't presume to decode it entirely, but there's something. Uh, um, there's just something about making the choice or, or what people perceive to be the choice of being on a motorcycle that sends a pretty strong cultural message, whether, um, they aspire to it or not, which I guess was behind my question. Um, you mentioned, um, Piercing's book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I was going to ask you about that in a minute, but let's, let's talk about it now. You obviously, uh, liked it, um, because you've written it several times. How can you tell me what you liked about it? And, and how would you summarize the thesis? <laughs> because, uh, there's hardly been a more parsed piece of, uh, of popular literature that I can think of. I'm dying to know what, um, what you thought it was all about. Yeah, well, it, it, uh, about a lot of things. And of course, and, uh, the main thing I got out of it was relationship that relationship is really important. And so we have the relationship between uh, Robert Pierzig, the author, and his son, Chris. We have his friends that rode the BMW who never did anything uh, as far as maintenance goes because it was far too complicated. And of course, Robert would break down the motorcycle and fix this and fix that and, and felt comfortable. Um, then you had, you know, the, the journey itself and, and in all the, the thoughts that come. And then the thoughts that don't come as well. I, I, it took me, uh, I, I found a book called, I'm going to paraphrase, Understanding Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Two guys wrote a book on how to understand the book. And, and the part that always messed me up was, uh, was Western philosophy. I didn't know as much then as I do now. And so uh, I, I, that was hard to follow. Um, the part on Eastern philosophy is a little easier for me to follow because I found that to be more interesting. The relationship of the motorcycle and, and, uh, to Robert and, and how he 
wrote about being on the road and how he wrote about experiencing things. And then finally making it to California and seeing the ocean and the, the journey had ended. And yet it hadn't. The journey hadn't ended. It was still, uh, that was just one of the destinations along the way of his life. Uh, the sad part for me uh, later, uh, years later, was reading about Chris, his son, who was uh, in San Francisco at, 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 at the Zen Center and doing meditation and after one of the meditations, he walked outside and was going to walk home, and somebody uh, approached him and wanted to steal some money from him. And, and he said, I don't have any money. And the guy stabbed him, and he ended up dying from the stab wound. And I thought to myself, wow, man, you know, that's not the way it's supposed to end. Come on. And yet, that's the way it ended. And so you just look at this journey that he was on, and it had so many examples of just life and what he didn't expect and what he did expect that didn't happen and all those other things. And, and after reading about the history of the book, it was, it was, he went to 20 different publishers. Nobody wanted that. It wasn't going to, it wasn't going to sell. It wasn't going to sell. And, and then that one publisher said, I'll give it a shot. And it was, it was a bestseller. And I can remember back in the seventies walking in Westwood village, which is in Los Angeles and looking in the window of a, a bookstore when they had bookstores and there was in in the auto motorcycle maintenance. Now I was, that was way before my, my meditation and my Zen and my Buddhism period. And I thought to myself, I wonder what the hell that's all about, you know, uh, cause I had no clue. And, uh, and years later I picked it up and started to read it. And, it, and it took me a long time to read it the first time. And then I got the audio book. And uh, on CD, when CDs were popular, and I would take, you know, if I was traveling to a, a conference or a meditation retreat that was a distance away, I'd take the little CDs along with me, listen to them on the road. And I thought to myself, this is the perfect thing to listen to on the road, mm. going to wherever I was going to go. It was just, it just sucked me in and made me go right back to that, that experience of reading the book. And, um, so I can't really give you a good, definite answer to what it's all about, except it's relationship in life. Yeah. Well, then maybe the fact that it's a bit of a Rorschach is its strength. Um, did you did you identify with either side of the ideological divide that that was proposed there? This idea of the I'm trying to remember now the the classicists versus the romantics. Did you connect with that at all? No, no, I hate to say it, but I know I didn't. I, I've never been one to to relate to, you know, uh, uh, prototypes or ideological, you know, arguments or which side are you on? Are you this? Are you that? I've, I've never been smart enough to pick a side. <laughs> That's very kind of you. I usually find so, picking a side as an excuse to avoid thinking, <laughs> but um, maybe I've got a longer journey ahead of me than you. <laughs> um, speaking of, I <laughs> I watched um, a wonderful talk that you gave about karma, um, which was in in several uh, um, several chapters. Um, so I won't bother trying to 
to summarize anything here, but what, what it really means in Buddhism versus, versus what the rest of us think it means. And it, it kind of spoke to me as a motorcyclist because it really drove home again and again this idea that it's all on us, this idea of, of you know, sort of the, the thoughts, the, the words, the deeds, um, the responsibility for consequence. Um, you know, that really, karma, as I understood your explanation of it, felt a lot like um, a sort of spiritual engine for being a great motorcyclist, if you like. Uh, how would you briefly... And I appreciate that's unfair. Um, how would you briefly explain karma to the people uh, listening to this? Okay, uh, it's it's a big subject, but to keep it simple, uh, karma is everything you think, say, and do. Vipaka, which is a Pali word, uh, is the consequence. So karma is what you do. Vipaka is the consequence of what you do, think, or say. Karma is one of the contributing factors, but not the only one, that to, to everything that happens in your life. Karma is one of the contributing factors, but not the only one. So we find ourselves in certain, certain circumstances. For instance, if it's raining, okay, and you're on the road, uh, that's not your karma. That's the rain. <laughs> and, and your karma is to think, say, and do something skillful not to slide out and, and end up on the ground. And so, so there's a lot of circumstances we find ourselves in that are there not because of anything we've done, not because of any consequences of anything we've done, but simply because we live on Earth, we have gravity, um, we have a mind that thinks a certain way. Uh, it's so, so, but our karma what we think, say, and do allows us to have some say in the matter of our life. And I think that's what I really enjoy, that the, the fact that, yeah, I've got something to say about this. I've got something to do about this. I don't have to believe in fate. I don't have to say that it was predestined to happen because it wasn't. There's nothing predestined to happen if you understand karma. And even if you really screw up and, and, and do something stupid and you know that karmic consequences are going to be very painful before the consequences occur, rarely it's not instant karma. Rarely it's, you know, there's karma and vipaka and there's a time in between. All you need to do to change the consequences is do something better before the consequences occur. To be kinder, to be more generous, to be... Uh, more observant of other people and, and, and respectful of them, all those things we can do. And that lessens the karmic consequences of, of anything we've done in the past. So I, I like that. We don't, we've got always got something to do. We always need to be proactive and there's an accountability and, and being in charge that gives me confidence in my future. Well, so well said, um, although I'll still suggest people listen to the, <laughs> to the videos. Um, but, uh, that perfectly captures, I think the parallel that I was <laughs> talking about. Um, you, you tell a, a funny story about receiving your 
Buddhist name, Kusala, um, which if I remember correctly means skillful. Mm-hmm. And um, apparently you were given this name mm-hmm. not because you were, but because you weren't. Um, and it was sort of a reminder of what you need to work on. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope that's a, f- a fair summary. I thought it was brilliant because it embedded this idea of humility into who you are. Um, and and uh, and I really connected with that because I always thought humility was the best piece of safety equipment a rider can, can have. Um, do, is, so am I extracting something? Something you know from that correctly, and 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 what do you think about that? Talk, talk a bit about the role of humility in all this. Yeah, that 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 story is one of my favorites, and it's about you know uh, getting my name uh, Kusala, and uh, when I became an official Buddhist. So it's not when I was a monk, but when I became an official Buddhist. I wanted to be a Buddhist. I wanted to identify myself identify myself as a Buddhist, and so we have a ceremony that we do. And we take uh, the five precepts, uh, I will practice not to take life, I will practice not to take what is not given, I will practice not to indulge in sexual misconduct, I will practice um, uh, not to speak unskillfully, and I will practice not to consume intoxicants. So these are the practice precepts that every Buddhist takes when they become an official Buddhist and you get a certificate, and then you're given a Buddhist name. And so my Buddhist name was Kusala which means skillful, and I was very excited that they recognized that in me. And then they said, we're giving you the name Kusla because you aren't, not because you are. And I'm going, wow, okay, so what does that mean? What they're saying is, is this is something you can be, even though you're not now. You've got this as potential and you can realize it, and all you need to do is practice the five precepts. And the five precepts will allow you to be skillful. You know, I'm going, okay, but how about meditation? How about all those books on Buddhism? How about all that stuff? Isn't that going to make me skillful? And, and the answer that I got back was, well, yes, it will. But being mindful of those five precepts in every moment of every day will allow you to to um, go forward at a much faster rate because you are going to have a complete day of practice every day of your life, practicing not to take life, practicing this, practicing that. So I'm going, okay. So I kept reading the books. I kept listening to Dharma talks. I kept doing all that stuff. But every time I was uh, partially broke the precept or maybe broke the precept, uh, for instance, uh, not to kill and there's a fly and you kill the fly. And you go, whoa, man, I took that precept not to kill, and then I killed the fly, and I wasn't even thinking about it, because that was simply a reaction and not a response, and da-da-da-da. Would there be some way I could not kill the fly and remove it from my immediate environment? And, of course, there is. You catch the fly, and you take it outside, and, and then it's not a problem, and you don't have to kill it. So you start looking around at life. And all the times you've taken a life needlessly, whether it be a mosquito or a cockroach or fly, and there's oftentimes a workaround uh, that you can get rid of the problem by, but not having to kill it. And and so okay, so the precepts and 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 having the name Kusla, being skillful, has really motivated me in a in a very specific way to look at life so much differently than I did before. And and I found this little Buddhist ceremony of becoming an official Buddhist was remarkable in the impact it had on my life. Yeah, remarkable 
Um, indeed. I, so the last episode of this podcast, I, <clears throat> I, I sort of culturally appropriated um, uh, the concept of the beginner mind. And I wonder if that's a little bit, um, if that connects somehow with what you're saying. Well, I, maybe, maybe. I, I, I've looked at beginner's mind a little differently uh, than that. Uh, so, you know, you, 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 you take your five precepts, you get your Buddhist name, you read all these books, you go to all these Dharma talks, you do the retreats, you meditate every day, you do blah, blah, blah. And, and now you're getting to be pretty skillful and pretty professional at being a Buddhist. But what that does is that doesn't allow you to see stuff. It doesn't allow you to see anything but what it means to be a professional Buddhist. So the idea with beginner's mind, Suzuki Roshi wrote the book. It's wonderful. And uh, uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, I think that's the title. Is uh, um, That every day needs to be your first day. That uh, this is the first time you've ever experienced this day. And the hard part is it just seems like another day. But it's not. It's a very unique day. It's the only day that we'll ever have that's like this. And every day is like that. So to come to beginner's mind is to look at your life with fresh eyes, to look at the world in a fresh, new way, to be excited about the possibility of living in this day and having it be something you've never experienced before. And there's a certain energy that comes out of that perspective. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, earlier, we we talked um, about your path as having, um, you know, in part, <clears throat> sort of been a way of overcoming the fear of death. Um, and I think, at, at least in the in the beginning, and I think there are a lot of motorcyclists who feel the same way about the the communion that they have with their machines. That that it's a way of um, uh, there are very few riders who get on a bike completely fearlessly, and you know don't go home in an ambulance. I think, um, there's some kind of, um, process going on there that, that seems similar to, uh, the one that you experienced. I, I wonder if there's anything. So if we accept that's true, if you, if you accept that's true, I, I wonder what we can learn from your journey about dealing with that, with that fear. We're dealing with the fear of death. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a tough one, uh, because, you know, I. Uh, if, if you think about the angels and the gods, small g, s, they never have to die. Animals in the world, uh, ourselves included, well, no, not ourselves, but the animals in the world, like the cats and dogs and fish, and, they don't know they're going to die. And, and we're the only animal that knows we're going to die, and there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> so we're in a really unique position to look at the world and say, okay, I, I know I have to die. Um, and, and, um, and I don't want to, so how can I practice? How can I practice dying, uh, in a, in an everyday situation? And so I started with looking at my, uh, meditation practice as allowing myself capital S S E L F to die to die into the moment, to die into the practice of meditation, to not have a past and future, to not be identified in a particular way, to get to that place of, of interconnection and interdependence. And then at, as the gong rings and the meditation is over, I, I reconstitute, I'm reborn, if you will. And, and so now the, the next person takes over. 
until the next meditation. And then that person dies into the moment and then is reborn because of the gong and having to, to move and, and continue life. And then another person and another person. So, so practicing meditation allows us to die into the moment and be reborn. Buddhism does have something called a rebirth. But then I thought to myself on a, on a bigger level, well, you know, uh, how many different people have I been in this single lifetime? You know, I've been the adolescent, I've been the teenager, I've been the 20s guy, the 30s guy, the 40s guy. And were they all the same guy? Well, no, no. In, in order for the next guy to happen, the old guy had to die. And okay. And, and so metaphorically or poetically, you you die into the moment, you die into the day, you die into the generation, and the next person is reborn. So life becomes similar to a relay race. We just keep handing off the baton to the next person we're going to be. And ultimately, in Buddhism, then that last person dies, and then the new person is reborn. So what's a good way for a Buddhist to die? Well, a good way for the Buddhist to die is to turn off the TV, number one, and and not to think about all the stuff you've done or been or, or think about the new life you're looking forward to and what you're going to do and what you're going to be and how it's going to be. And so turning away from family and friends, from career, from place, and and turning towards the the new rebirth. So there's a whole process simply in meditation, simply in a generation, simply every day. And I remember when I quit smoking, I smoked for 14 years. And, and I turned 28, and that was the beginning of my spiritual quest to, to get physically fit and, and mentally competent. And, and I just quit one day. I woke up one day and said, I'm going to die. I am mortal. And the reason I stopped smoking was not so I would live longer, but I would have a better quality of life while I'm still alive. Then I realized that I had to kill the person who smoked. So the person who didn't smoke could be reborn and born into this lifetime. So it took a long time to kill the person that didn't smoke and, and form or give birth to the person uh, that would never have another cigarette. And then every now and then, that person that used to smoke comes and visits. Even after all these years, I quit in 1978. And after all these years, there'll be a little desire to have a cigarette. But it's, it, it goes by quickly. It's, it's not a long desire. It's a very quick desire. But I'm thinking that person never really dies completely. They're always in the background. So all those people I have been in this lifetime are still there at some level in some way. And oftentimes I'll see myself responding or reacting to a situation in a way that I used to do 20 years ago. And, and I would go, my, my, isn't that something that's still not gone? And, and um, so I find this idea of death, the ultimate death of this lifetime, to be simply a series of mini deaths while we're still alive. Well, that's considerably more uplifting <laughs> than the way I was looking at it. Um, that's that's uh, that's fantastic. Um, and so, I'm wondering: in, Do you think? I mean, quite separate from the 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 purely spiritual, you know, implications of this, do you think motorcyclists would benefit from meditation? Is that something? Um, 
you know, is, is Leon's assertion that these two things can help each other uh, ultimately, in fact, accurate? Well, I, I think the motorcyclists are already meditating. They just don't have a name for it. And I think trying to attach a label to what they're doing on the motorcycle is, is taking away some of the, some of the natural uh, ability. So I, I, I would say uh, a person who meditates would, would find it similar to riding a motorcycle, and it might enhance the motorcycle riding. But I think most motorcyclists already do that and, and, and just don't have a name for it. Hmm. Yep. That's what I would say, too. I was hoping that would be your answer. <laughs> um, Reverend Kusala, it has been such a delight uh, to share this time with you. Um, I feel like I could keep you all day. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Well, thanks for the invitation to speak. And, and I, I've, I've enjoyed my time with you. And it's so fun now to reflect on my motorcycle riding. That It's, it's such an important place in my life. And, and it gives me great joy just to even talk about it. How wonderful. Well, I hope somehow there's a transformational, one more transformational trip in your future, but um, um, I'm thrilled to hear that, and I think everybody listening to this will be too. So whatever you're riding, um, be safe out there, and, and thanks again. Well, thank you, and, and be safe and be well. while I was editing this, a page of scribbled quotes, and here are a few. The drone of the engine was like a knife cutting my thoughts into little pieces. That's just amazing to me. The cocoon of awareness. The autonomy of separateness. The dance of the relative and the ultimate. And the idea of dying into the moment. And I quickly realized that this isn't going to be one of those episodes that I can wrap up in a tidy bow. As far as the original question goes, is riding a motorcycle like meditating? Well, the answer is obviously, and yet still somehow surprisingly, yes. In fact, what this conversation left me wondering was not whether riding is like meditating, but whether I'm expecting enough of myself when I'm doing it. I was kind of gobsmacked by this idea of every ride being like a life in miniature, where we relive the moment of birth and the act of living, and finally a kind of death when it's all over, only to be reborn the next time we thumb the starter. If you're anything like me, that rang thunderingly true. Well, those aren't words we'd use to describe the experience to a normal person, but that really is how it feels. And if every ride is a life in miniature, then shouldn't our hearts soar every time that engine starts? Shouldn't we be wide awake for every moment? And shouldn't we be grateful and at peace when it's all over, every time, without taking a single second for granted? And if all that's true, then shouldn't chasing that experience become a practice? Shouldn't we strive to be, in some sense, skillful monks? Well, this is one of those episodes I'm going to listen to again, and maybe again. And maybe eventually, if I listen hard enough over the sound of the engine and the wind, I'll hear those words too. Welcome back to the universe. Well, thanks for listening. You'll find show notes for this episode at thismotorcyclelife.com. That's also how you can reach me if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions. 
Emailing me at thismotorcyclelife at gmail.com works too, and I look forward to answering every one. I'm a bit quiet on Instagram these days as the winter closes in, but you can still find me lurking there if you want to say hi. And that's also where you'll find a lot of the people I've interviewed for this podcast, including Venerable Kusala Bhikshu. Well, this episode's playlist recommendation comes from a listener and a friend of the podcast, Kyler Morrison, whose music I've used once before. Kyler wrote me back in September to say he'd headed west from his home in Ohio to make a new life in Arizona and had recorded a couple of new tracks to celebrate this new chapter. The one I'm going to share with you now is called Ready Boy, and it just happens to be about finding rebirth on the road. It's kind of a sign from the universe. Buy it or stream it wherever you like to get your music, and in the meantime, keep staying alive out there. Crashing waves roll on immensely The ocean's romance always gets me Come home, you're ready, boy Come home, you're ready, boy But that's Southwest desert sure looks pretty Her clear blue sky it whispers to me Come home you're ready boy Come home you're ready boy Wow.